Welcome to All Sides with Ann Fisher. Nearly half of low-income college hopefuls who are accepted into a university or college never enroll because they can't pay the freight, or they think they can't pay the freight. In the end, just one in 10 ever earn a degree. Ohio State University is one of several across the country that has taken notice. Beginning next fall, OSU will cover the balance for low- and middle-income students who qualify for the federal Pell Grant program after grants and scholarships are counted. Coming up, we'll hear from a representative of the New York State System of Higher Education and their efforts on this re- on this issue, and we'll talk with a student financial aid expert. Joining us now is OSU Executive Vice President and Provost Bruce McFerrin. Welcome back to the show. Good morning, Ann. The program is expected to help about 3,500 in-state students. How did the university arrive at that number? Well, the number actually is based on our current demographic of how many eligible students we would have under these criteria. So looking at Pell eligibility, uh, you mentioned that uh, that name, that's a federal financial aid program. So students have to go through the process of, of applying for and being awarded, awarded that money. And then uh, we roll up the other financial aid they receive through the state and other sources. And this program then is designed to, to meet the difference between that total uh, financial aid they're bringing from those other sources and the cost of tuition and our mandatory fees. It only applies to students who attend the main campus. Why that limitation? Well, we have students who are applying now. So, uh, you know, November 1st is our early action deadline for applications. So we wanted to get this information in the hands of families and students as they're thinking about their choices. We are absolutely committed to finding a pathway on our regional campuses as well. Uh, You know, the need is there also. Those uh, campuses are are different sorts of campuses. It's an open enrollment process there as opposed to a more selective admission process on the the Columbus campus. There are a series of other questions that we're working on actively right now. Friday, I just met with all of those deans to talk to them about next steps and making sure that we're listening to to the needs of of the campuses and the students there. Do you know, or is that what that 3,500 is from? Do you know how many students don't? that are accepted at OSU's main campus that don't attend because they think they can't afford it or can't afford it? I don't know that number. This actually is um, the number who we know are on campus enrolled okay. uh, in any given year who have a differential between external financial aid that they've received and that cost. And is it just for incoming freshmen or will existing students who also would otherwise qualify be included? This will actually be inclusive. So the incoming freshmen in the fall will experience this, transfer students from other universities. Students who are campus change students from our own regional campuses will be eligible, and existing students will be eligible for this. If you're just joining us, my guest is OSU Vice President and Provost Bruce McFerrin. We're talking about that offer of free tuition and mandatory fees, at least after uh, students, uh, and this is for students who qualify for Pell Grants, and after those Pell Grants kick in and other scholarships and sources of money to help pay for college. It's a big problem. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 614-292-8513. Coming up for the next couple segments, we're going to have an expert in student financial aid issues. So if you have any questions for him, maybe think about those and give us a call, 614-292-8513, or you can email us at allsides at wosu.org. There are strings attached for first and second year students um, who have to live on campus now, on the main campus. That costs as much as tuition, if not more. 
it's actually a higher cost for a room and board. And then, of course, uh, we have to think about the cost of textbooks. That's an added right. cost for every student. Uh, the the federal uh, financial aid formula take into account things like travel back home and, and other incidental expenses. So this doesn't cover the full cost, but it does make a, a huge dent in the cost of, of education for these students. Of course, students who live within a certain number of miles from campus don't have to live on campus, We have a commuter right? range. That's right. Uh, it's about 40 miles, I believe, is the the uh, level where we would allow students to petition to live at home. And so, you know, I'm actually the the mandate to live on campus for two years was driven by educational programs for students that actually are demonstrating that they make student success greater. Yeah. So there are advantages. There's a cost, but there are some great advantages in terms of student completion uh, that we're already seeing even four years into our second year program. One of the biggest issues, especially for first-generation college hopefuls, is that they don't know how to navigate the system. It's complicated. There's too much red tape. How does OSU help them in that regard? Well, you know, we actually, through our enrollment services team, which uh, reports into my office, we answer hotline questions uh, interminably throughout the application season. Uh, And we partner with a lot of of high schools, with uh, uh, folks around the state, Uh, to make sure that uh, we're trying to really spread the word on assistance on both the application process for college itself and then also uh, the financial aid question has to be answered as a first principle because, uh, as you pointed out in your intro, a lot of families and and their students – assume that they can't afford and never actually take the steps that that really help them identify that they could afford to go to college. Uh, You know, this could be very appealing, particularly to local students. And and is there any sense about how many students are slipping through the cracks just in in Columbus City schools alone? You know, I don't know that the answer to that question. Um, We do have a great concern. Uh, The university and, and President Drake have been Uh, national leaders in the American Talent Initiative. And that's been part of that conversation. That's focused on getting uh, Pell students to come to universities like Ohio State, uh, like Harvard and Yale, like Michigan, uh, to help them ensure that they complete their degrees. But one of the corollary questions is, who are we not reaching and Mm -hmm. how could we do a better job? We've had for a number of years the Young Scholars Program, which actually starts working with students now in eighth grade and uh, uh, has a couple of of resident activities where they come to campus. Uh, That actually reaches out to uh, the eight metropolitan regions of the state. And we work through... uh, uh, it's a mix of income, so a demographic uh, variation there from an economic perspective. And we work with uh, high schools to identify students who will make that commitment to being part of this program and really learning to understand the, the options that they have. Are you concerned at all that that there could be some offset at the state level when it comes to funding because of this? Well, you know, the state has been uh, really active the past several budget cycles in asking higher education in in Ohio to be uh, more affordable. So we're actually talking to our our elected officials uh, from the perspective of here's something we're doing to help with that problem. Uh, I really don't look for that kind of response. 
Uh, in this most recent budget cycle, uh, they're actually encouraging us to continue to work on textbook costs, for example. And uh, we have several programs just at Ohio State that are are creating online versions of textbooks and offsetting in the aggregate millions of dollars a year in textbook costs for, for students here. There, you could do a whole other program just on textbook textbook issues. Um, it's it's complicated. How are you getting the word out about this? Starting to, uh, in of course, a web presence is the starting point in the press releases that we put out the past week. And there's been a lot of, of coverage of that across the state. Uh, but we'll actually drive this out into communities and high schools. Ohio State has the great advantage of, um, of being the land-grant uh, presence with uh, Ohio State employees in every county and every community in the state. So we'll use extension as well to make sure that we're getting this word out into uh, local school districts to guidance counselors and driving it as far as we can. The federal Pell Grant program is at risk. Um, uh, The uh, uh, Trump administration has signaled in its budget, which, of course, its proposed budget, which, you know, has a lot of... uh, um, you know, iterations to mm-hmm. go, of course, uh, that they want to cut it or significantly cut it uh, by, I think, as much as 90 percent. If that happens, will the money still be available to students who would have qualified? I mean, is it only for students? I mean, is this about students who qualify for Pell but may not receive them because they run out of money or something like that? Well, we've built it around uh, the the Assumption. availability of Pell. Right. And, uh, you know, as you say, uh, any administrative budget is a proposal and the disposal, if you will, is at the other end of the mm-hmm. pipeline with the, the uh, legislative process. And so it is a process and uh, the House and Senate have both continued to signal that they're strongly supportive of of the Pell program. That's something we would simply have to monitor as it happened. And, you know, our first principle would be to work with our elected officials to try to preserve a program that really is making a difference for millions of of young people across the nation. Some people are still probably wondering, how can you afford to do this and why haven't you been doing it before? Well, I think uh, the easy answer to this, Anne, is it tracks back to Ohio State's commitment to really thinking outside the box with regard to uh, how we operate our institution. Uh, And so uh, in April, uh, the board approved a program of us entering into a partnership with uh, two companies, Engie and Axiom, and they've created the Ohio State Energy Partners. Uh, They're managing our energy systems at the university for the next 50 years. And uh, it's a complex formula of of uh, how we continue to pay for infrastructure and energy costs, but they provided us with an upfront payment in in excess of a billion dollars. That's billion with a B. Mm-hmm. That's now in our endowment, and this funding actually, when it comes. Uh, uh, available to students next fall will be income from that a, por- a portion of that endowment. Over time, you expect the number to grow, right? We do, and we expect the endowment will grow as well. And so we hope that that keeps pace. That's something that uh, time will simply tell uh, what other sources we might have to contemplate. Any debt is burdensome for really low-income uh, students and their families. I mean, that that's impossible. That's be it's imprudent. It's it's uh, irresponsible, some might say, to take on debt when you have so little income coming in. How much of a burden does a university expect them to shoulder when it comes to student loans? Well, you know, the um, 
Appel process itself works around a formula that's called the expected family contribution. Mm -hmm. And so that's a piece of the puzzle. And that may include students actually working as work-study, in work-study positions on campus, taking other part-time jobs. It might be parental contributions. It might be some loans. And so it's a mix. And uh, you know, we do worry about that. We worry about uh, our ability to help students control how much money they owe for their education when they leave with their degree. We've actually seen a modest downtick over the last few years, just a percentage point or two, but it's the right direction. In, de- in debt burden? In debt burden and the percentage of our Ohio State students that graduate with debt. There's been a lot of publicity about the student debt. Mm-hmm. Um, it's actually really rare when you find those ones with seventy, eighty, a hundred thousand dollars but still. It is. And I think what people uh, don't actually appreciate because, you know, we don't really tell this story is that uh, nearly half of the students have zero debt. And so we talk about uh, the average debt. Uh, it's, it's skewed by a few that have a lot. And then there are a number that are, that are facing a a, a difficult burden, but a burden that is probably manageable as they uh, move into their, their series of careers. Do you have to be a full-time student to qualify for this, this uh, scholar or this, this uh, intuition help? At this point in time, we're actually trying to make it available to everyone who is in the Pell-eligible category, and that means that they have received Pell and are applying it toward their, deg- their degree. And since you've announced this, Last week, mm-hmm. uh, have you s- received any inquiries from other state universities and colleges in in Ohio about this and how you're doing it? We have not. I actually have uh, a meeting with my Ohio Public Higher Education Provost colleagues on Thursday, and okay. I suspect they, knowing that we're going to meet face to face down here in Columbus, uh, I'll get some some conversations going in a couple days. But it's not something you could have done otherwise without that. Uh, energy management. Uh, no, this is it's about eleven million dollars a year that we're anticipating needing to put into this program, just as it's defined today. Yeah, and that just wasn't available. It's before. It's just not in the cards, and so it really is a, a direct result of uh, thinking really creatively, a way that uh, you know people across the nation at other institutions just are not even talking about some of the things that Ohio State has actually done, uh, our work with parking, our work now with energy. Uh, those things are, are really national leading approaches to funding higher education institutions. But some people think it also is changing the nature of the public university and what it really is. Well, you know, I ask people to define the core principles of what makes a university. And we all agree discovering new ideas is really important, research and creative expression. We all agree that uh, spreading that through education, actually in the classroom and outside the classroom, is a really important principle for a university. And then we get to running a parking, wait a second, we need parking lots, but actually running it isn't a core uh, element of of actually being a successful university. And so we need to always balance to make sure that any clever idea that we might pursue doesn't undermine the academic uh, principles of the university. And so there will be some things I'm sure we will continue to reject as ideas. But on the other hand, 
thinking about how we actually put resources out of doing things that other folks might be more efficient at doing and into uh, the things that we do so very well, new ideas and, and disseminating those ideas is really important to us. Bruce McFerrin, thanks so much for joining us. I appreciate it. It's a pleasure. That's Bruce McFerrin. He's executive vice president and provost at Ohio State University. Coming up, we're going to hear uh, from his counterpart uh, for academic affairs at SUNY Albany. And uh, also we'll hear from an expert in education finance. So stay with us. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm your host, Ann Fisher. Monies is just one of many obstacles to higher education for low-income college hopefuls. Lower-income students and their families tend to overestimate the cost, pricing themselves out before they've even started the process. And when they do start the process, especially in first-generation cases, the red tape can be overwhelming. We're talking about how to make the leap for low- and middle-income students who otherwise can't afford college without significant help. Joining us by phone is an expert in education finance and co-author of the 2016 book, Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams, John Hupelow. Welcome to the show. And thank you for having me. Good to be back. Also by phone, Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs at the State University of New York, Albany, James Steller. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ann. It's a pleasure to be here. So New York last year kicked off its Excelsior Scholarship Program. How does that work? Who qualifies? Okay, so what the governor did was to offer uh, free tuition as last dollars to uh, public university students in the state of New York. and We are uh, one of the larger public institutions in the state of New York, located in the city of Albany, but we serve the whole region. Uh, And basically what we have is about 1,000 students who are receiving these last dollars so far. But remember, this has just gotten started. It didn't really have a time to impact our freshman class. It's more hit us on the transfer side. Hmm. But we certainly have launched it. It's going to be a major factor in our composition of our class next year, and it is removing that last element of debt that our students face. We think we're saving students about $4 million a year in that residual debt, and I make the point again that it's less dollars, so our students get TAP, they get Pell, they get other sources of financial aid, and then the state comes in and makes the debt go to zero by completing the financial aid package for tuition. Who qualifies? Anybody who makes under $100,000 as family income now, it will go up to 125000 So it's really targeted at more than uh, just the, the lower socioeconomic classes. It, it's trying to address also getting into the middle class. Uh, so $125,000 and down will be the ultimate ceiling. Uh, right now we're at 100. This is funded by the state, not the university, right? It's funded by the state. Um, The state also provides a tuition assistance program, and so this is another opportunity for students to collect some help in tuition from the state of New York. It's a separate new program. How did you figure what the cost would be? 
Well, that's a very good question. Uh, so we've spent an awful lot of time trying to understand not only the cost of, of the last dollars, how much we would be claiming of the state's money, but also how many students we would have, because as you can expect, uh, we think this is going to help us with enrollments, um, and we can handle those enrollments. And it's important not only to remove the debt, but also we think as a public university to educate more Americans, many of whom, of course, don't go to school because they don't think they can afford it. So it's a for us two factors. How much dollars do we need to ask the state to reimburse us for? And how do we handle the new students that we expect uh, to have? Because we are actually growing as an institution according to our own internal plans. Um, it's it's been really exciting. People have been working very hard, but we're very happy to be part of this great new initiative on the part of the state. New York has budgeted eighty seven million dollars just for the first year. And what are the discussions? And I know you're you're not a state. You know you're not a, 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 a I guess you have a uh, assembly there, um, not an state assembly member. But what are the conversations about how this could be sustainable? Well, I think the governor uh, has developed a number of programs which use the higher education system in the state of New York, particularly SUNY, to try to develop entrepreneurship in the state, to keep people in the state. Uh, So, for example, there's something called Startup New York, which is not relevant to the uh, tuition conversation, but does involve business development uh, using the intellectual property uh, and buy-in of universities. So I think the governor sees this as expanding the tax base, Uh, I'm saying this as an inference because, as you pointed out, I'm not a member of the Assembly. Mm -hmm. I do happen to live in the capital city, but uh, that doesn't qualify me to read (laughs) the minds of the Assembly members. Uh, There are critics of the program. Some just don't like the state creating this entitlement. What's the defense against that criticism? Well, the the criticism comes to us from a couple of sources. One is the people who don't want to see the the state's... uh, um, Finances increase. They mm-hmm. want to uh, have more cuts in taxes and lower expenses. Uh, the second criticism comes to us from the private universities who feel like this program will shift mm-hmm. the balance of students towards the publics. Uh, I think what we have to do is to implement this, uh, work with the governor's office, work with the assembly, um, and, and see how it plays out. But come on, the the mission of increasing public education in America and reducing debt that, that is a very good story. So we think we're starting from a great place, and then the details we will work out. Other details include things like you have to take 15 credits a year, uh, 30 credits a year, excuse me, uh, over the whole year. So that keeps the kids on track. We actually like that because we don't want students to fall behind and graduate late. We know that the longer they take to graduate, the more likely they are to drop out. Now they have debt and no degree. So if we're going to take care of their debt, let's try to graduate them on time. And then there's a payback agreement, which is somewhat controversial, that you should uh, work in the state mm-hmm. for the number of years that you were on the Excelsior Scholarship Program. Um, and, you know, that's the business of the state. But we are certainly happy to, to take those students who would agree to those conditions and work with them to graduate them debt-free in terms of tuition over a four-year period. If for some reason you don't end up graduating for there could be any number of reasons, but do you owe the state back for what you what you received uh, during the time you did were in the Excelsior program, or, or is there not a graduation requirement? This is a good question. I, I do not believe that there is a graduation requirement for payback, but if you step out of the Excelsior program, you cannot get back in again. Huh, okay. Uh, so it, it's got a certain discipline to it. Yeah. Uh, And again, I will tell you from the purposes of an academic administrator, we like the fact that the students are 
being asked to do stuff for receiving state money. We like the fact that they're asked to, to stay on track, 30 credits a year. We like the fact that they're asked to uh, stay with the program. Um, so uh, there is no penalty if, you, if something happens in your sophomore year to your family and you have to stop your education. Mm-hmm. It converts to a 0% loan is what happens. John Hupolo, an ongoing issue is that too many college hopefuls just don't know about these programs or they're stymied by the red tape and accessing them in the first place. And I, I think that's right, but I, I give uh, the State University of Albany, the Ohio State University, and others a lot of credit uh, for really thinking outside the box and working uh, with, with state governments, uh, sometimes uh, private initiatives like the one at Ohio State with a very innovative program to fund. Others, uh, like my alma mater in Boston, Boston University, fund similar programs through a scholarship uh, through one of the trustees. So uh, I think there's a lot of innovation going on in the community right now to try to help underserved students afford college. And the reality, then, is the next step of marketing it and getting the word out and letting um, folks know that these kinds of programs are available and they're increasing in number Uh, not just at the public universities, but at the private colleges as well, who are trying to find ways, frankly, to keep up uh, with the innovation that's going on at the state level and and throughout the community. Um, So I think it's a very exciting time in higher education, particularly in higher education finance, and hearing public officials uh, from great schools saying, we want two things. Uh, We want to make these programs affordable uh, for all, without incurring uh, excessive amounts of debt. That's a tremendous step forward. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. We are talking about uh, financial aid for students in higher education, uh, spurred by the announcement last week at Ohio State University will begin offering uh, tuition aid uh, to students who are qualified for Pell Grants at the federal level. If you have a question or comment about financial aid, uh, this is a good time to give us a call, 614-292-8513. One of my guests is an expert in education finance. You just heard his new voice, John Hupolo. Also with us is James Steller. He's provost and senior vice president for academic affairs at State University of New York, Albany, uh, where they started this year uh, a similar program, but funded through the state, not the university. 614-292-8513 or all sides at WOSU.org if you want to send us an email. Um, there's a program in New York City high schools, J- James Steller. It provides college students coaches, I'm sorry, college student coaches to low-income college hopefuls to help them navigate the system, everything from finding the right paperwork to signing up for the right grants and loans. And I'm wondering from where you sit if something like that matters. Uh, it absolutely matters because it's one thing to have the opportunity to get a, a tuition-free education for four years. It's another thing to navigate it. And not only is it, does it matter in terms of getting in, getting the paperwork done, making sure you have all the right forms filed, but also when you're here, uh, we were 40% first-generation students at the University of Albany with a large draw from New York City. Mm. And so we have to make sure those students uh, can get through their freshman year. We have a major effort now to improve the, the, the uh, freshman to sophomore retention because you can't graduate a student if you don't hold on to them until sophomores, and then guide them through the university. Uh, we're a large, complicated, wonderful place, um, but it always helps to have a guide and even better to have a mentor. And so we would like to make sure that, that all of our students feel welcome here. We're about 17,000 plus 
students so we could be a big place, but we would like everybody to feel like they have a home and a person they can talk to not only to get the paperwork done, but also to figure out if economics is the right major for you or whether you should switch to something else um, and, and how you can turn that into a successful career that will graduate you on time and with a job. That's something that we also have to make sure we do in public higher education is that we get students to the place where they are a successful post-graduation, not just in getting through. You know, that, that which brings up that, that criticism about the having to live in New York State for the same number of years that they you attend college to participate in the Excelsior program. What if the only place that they can get a job is in northern New Jersey, or they can't afford to live in New, New York City, and the only place they can afford to live is in northern New Jersey? Why, why hamstring them in that regard? I know this wasn't a decision by the university, but right. what, what, what do you make of that? Well, it is controversial. There are people okay. that say it on all sides. You've articulated the one side, which is great. I, the only job I can get is in northern Jersey, and I want to be there, not where I am now. Uh, so uh, it's not fair to me to make me stay in New York against my will. Now, if you leave, you get that uh, that, con- that uh, payback agreement kicked in, uh, so you don't lose the scholarship. But the other side of the argument is that this is funded by the taxpayers of New York, and they'd like to retain the talent. Mm-hmm. That's in New York. Uh, New York is a big state, upstate, downstate, uh, east and west. We got a lot of opportunities. Uh, you may know that we are the 11th largest um, operation in the world if we were to become a country. Uh, so there's tons of opportunity here. And there are exceptions built in. For example, veterans, the uh, people that go into the Army, um, there's uh, waivers that you can get for other hardships. Uh, so we're hoping that when it's fully implemented, that it will not be onerous. But right now you have put your finger on an important controversial element. To me, this is still secondary. The main focus is that we will get you into college, get you your tuition handled so that your family, even with multiple children, will not be burdened by this. Because it's not just the first kid to go to college in a public institution with an affordable tuition. It's the second and the third. And that's really, I think, what the governor sees, what the assembly sees, is that we will better educate New York Americans to be a participant in the economy going forward. And if you have that attitude, it's a little bit more understandable that you would want the students to stay here for the number of years that they received the Excelsior Scholarship. Um, But it is controversial. We have an email from Angel. She writes, my sister graduated from Ohio University and is now taking classes at Ohio State. It is wonderful that OSU is extending more help to students. But one issue that many schools have uh, issues with is correctly answering questions about their student aid. My sister has had this issue at every institution. Incorrect information is more detrimental to kids who are poor or dropping out. And John Hupolo, I certainly came across that problem in a lot of the reading I did to prepare for today, that universities often are at the root of the problem in terms of the information they hand out. Well, there's a lot to that, um, and and the part of the issue sometimes, and we see it um, all the time, is that you want to Google, find the quick answer, and move on. And, and sometimes, unfortunately, um, when you try to, to get this information yourself, you may be a little bit behind. So going to the school um, is really the first and, and best um, source of the, the information. I found that most schools in the last few years have done an excellent job of updating their websites, uh, certainly calling the financial aid office. Um, the one uh, really critical um, point to all this is that most of these programs um, start with the filing of the free application for federal student aid. 
Um, so I think that getting that FAFSA filed, and it's now available um, as of October 1st, so just a few days ago for mm-hmm. this next um, year, um, the very first critical piece of information uh, that needs to be provided to the school um, is the, the application process itself. So the student fills out the FAFSA, uh, they go to fafsa.ed.gov to do that, um, and then the school gets information, and then they can begin to process that application uh, for financial aid. So uh, critically important is getting all of that paperwork in on time, and in fact, as early as possible. The federal government's made it a little bit easier now uh, by saying that you can use your what they call prior prior year tax, which simply means that for the group that's filling out these uh, financial aid forms right now, they just uh, need to go back and, and use their 2015 tax return. So uh, there is misinformation. I think everyone's trying to um, improve the, the quality of the information that comes in by making it a little bit easier. Uh, there are always some kinks in the, in the system, of course. Uh, but for the most part, um, I think uh, checking and double-checking just to make sure that you're getting the right information um, it will be very helpful to parents and to students as they go through the process. Uh, John Hupelow is going to stay with us. He's an expert in education finance, co-author of the 2016 book, Plan and Finance, Your Family's College Dreams. I have to say goodbye and thank you to James Steller, Provost and Senior Vice President for Academic Affairs at SUNY in Albany. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you for having me. It's always a pleasure to talk about public education. We'll continue our conversation. If you have questions about financial aid, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at allsides at org or check out the Facebook page. You're listening to All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News. Welcome back to All Sides. I'm Ann Fisher. Ohio State last week announced a limited program to help qualified low- and middle-income students pay for tuition and mandatory fees. Funding is part of the equation. The other part is navigating the red tape, understanding the costs, and how student loans work. Still with us is John Hupelow. He's an expert in education finance and co-author of the 2016 book, Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams. If you have a question or comment, give us a call, 614-292-8513, or email us at all at WOSU.org. John, what do we know about why people overestimate the cost of a college education? It's it's expensive enough. <laughs> it, 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 it is, Anne. And the reason for that is the last question you posed to me, the, the, I'm going to say some of the misinformation. So it's really critical for people to understand the difference between the sticker price, what I said before when I go and I, I, I just Google or try to find on the website what the advertised price of the school is, and then the really important um, price, which is the one that the student pays, and they call that the net price. Um, So to your point, unfortunately, there's a lot of jargon in the college financing uh, part of the application, and understanding these terms is really critical. So the sticker price is the full cost of college education, tuition, room, board fees, everything that you see. But the question, the critical question is, what is it going to cost me? How much financial aid am I going to receive as a student to attend that university? And then what's left over, my unmet need? 
Um, that's really the critical um, question. If I have zero unmet need after I receive one of these grants or scholarships or the rest of it, and I don't need a loan, that's a perfectly affordable school. The sticker price might be $65,000, but if I'm getting $65,000 in aid, this, the cost to me is zero. Um, so that's a, a really key point uh, for everyone to focus on is what's the actual cost to my family to send my student or for me as the student to attend that particular college. And then how do you figure what you can afford as a col- for a college? Um I, I guess I hear about people going to these private schools. They don't have a they don't have a lot of lo- they don't have a lot of financial aid. Uh, they are taking on a ton of debt, and for an education that, frankly, I just don't get it. Well, you're right uh, to ask that question and be a little skeptical about that. Um, but I'm going to say this: and since the financial crisis, 2008, 2009, I, I really believe that there's a fundamental shift that has occurred. And there are two of those shifts, actually. One is the reaction by the colleges and universities, and your two prior guests talked eloquently about programs that they have. There are programs like those and others all across the country now because for the first time, I believe, colleges and universities realize that they're running a business and their demand is starting to go down um, because the cost is so high. So what are they doing? They're reacting like businesses do and they're coming up with these innovative programs. They're looking to the state for some help. They're looking to comprehensive energy management type programs like the Ohio State University entered into or at Boston University where they found a philanthropist to fund these scholarships. Uh, But the bottom line is they're starting to react. So that's one major shift. And and if you look at the data over the last 10-year period, the amount of institutional aid that colleges are providing to their students has more than doubled. Uh, So they've done a really good job of trying to get more... Uh, free money into the hands of students rather than burdening them with debt. And now on the other side of that, um, I always like to say that an affordable college is within the grasp of every family um, as long as, and this is a big caveat, I had two daughters who've been through the process, as long as you can detach yourself somewhat emotionally from the process, meaning that I might want to go to this great fancy uh, private school down the road, Um, But if they don't give me enough financial aid and they're going to burden me with heavy loan debt for a job that may not give me enough salary to repay that debt, that's not a good equation for me. Um, So it's it's critical, and I think families can control that part of that. I think the university is doing a much better job trying to get the financial aid in the hands of people who really need it. And I'm much more optimistic today than I was 10 years ago about uh, college graduates coming out with a more affordable amount of debt. And again, on the whole, there are always uh, the outliers on both sides where they have no debt or they have too much debt. Uh, but on whole, I think uh, families are making better decisions and schools are helping them to do that. Wendy in Columbus, you're on the air. Hi, Wendy. Hi, thank you for taking my call. The sure. scenario that you just your guest just mentioned about maybe making a mistake and allowing your child to go to a school that you do acquire a, a bunch of debt mm-hmm. <laughs> has happened in my family. Mm-hmm. So she started repaying her debt in November, and we were paying more towards the principal, except none of it was going to the principal. Long story short, through many months and phone calls and visits to institutions, I found out that the accrued debt had been put, or interest, accrued interest had been put into the principal And we were basically paying interest on interest until I made a rather large lump sum payment to pay off that accrued interest. 
So just last night I was mentioning to someone, this information has got to get out to those of us who took out loans so our child could go to a higher institution, maybe, you know, that's, that's just it. I just want the general person to understand that these companies that give these private student loans are putting the interest into the principal and then charging interest on interest. I, I think it's a crime, and that's all. Just listen to the comments offline. Okay. Thanks, Wendy. Take care. John Hoopla? Yeah, um, Wendy identified a, a very significant um, issue there, and and this uh, this uh, accrued interest is a problem. Uh, there there are two uh, parts of that. Um, one um, is that we always counsel folks um, when you take out a loan, um, if you can pay the interest while the students in school, um, you should absolutely do that. Uh, so that if you take out a four thousand dollar loan when the students are done at the end, you owe four thousand. You don't owe six. Um, the second part because of that the interest is, accrues while the student's actually attending school. For, well, and this is where we need to be really careful on some loans, um, on private credit student loans, which it sounds like perhaps Wendy and her family mm-hmm. um, took. Uh, that could be true uh, for federal government loans. The interest doesn't accrue right. on on top like that. So, uh, th- this is the first order. It's really important for listeners to understand: Are you going to go through the federal direct student loan program or the federal plus program? So, those are federal programs set up for students and parents. And then on the other side, if you're going to go to the private lenders, um, but also, um, you know, there is another side um, to that story, and that is uh, that on the promissory note, um, most times that you check off a box that says that you will you will not pay that interest in school or you want to. So they give you most lenders, in fact, most that I know, if not all, give parents the option to pay that. Unfortunately, and this is a common situation, in the rush of, of making everything happen and, and mm-hmm. trying to get the, the – you just either don't see it or don't focus on it, and it, you just make that – and I'll say make a mistake by not paying that interest while the student's in school. Um, so that's one thing. The second is that for many private credit loans um, offered in the last 10 or so years, there's something called a cosigner release. And, Anne, this is a critical point because what that does in private loans for for banks, credit unions, and others, the bank will say the student doesn't have a profile for credit right now where we'd run the money. But as long as the parent backs the student up for a period of time, we'll we'll give the student the money. And as long as those students make those payments on time, we'll allow that parent to be released from that loan through this co-signer release mechanism. And it's a great program because it allows you, again, as a parent, to help your student when they need the help, and it also then allows that student to take responsibility for that debt when they're on their feet, they have a job, they've kind of figured out how their life is going to work financially, and then it releases the parent from that obligation. Um, I think, though, overall, to Wendy's point, um, there is a lot of nuance and devil in the detail, and it comes at folks at a point that's very critical, and oftentimes they're they're um, emotionally attached. And I was too, so I'm not. I'm not. This is not a criticism. The reality mm-hmm. is, at that moment when that paperwork shows up, you want your kid to go to school. Here's a way to do it. You may not focus on things like paying the interest while you're school or looking for a cosigner release. But that information is out there. And one of the things that we say at Invite Education: start this process about understanding debt and loans in freshman sophomore year. So when the critical juncture comes and says, okay, of, of high school, take, yeah. 
let's just take it. You know, let, we'll have all that done. I think it's a very critical point. Yeah, I think one of the smartest, th- smartest things my parents ever did was they went to a workshop, and this was 150 years ago, but a workshop on filling out the FAFs, you know, the, the free... The, the, the FAFSA, right. Yeah, the FAFSA, and uh, and just understanding what kind of financial it is out there and how it works. And that was, hundred, like I said, 150 years ago. Things have changed a lot. It's a lot more complicated. We have an email from Candy. She says, is there an age limit on the free or lower college tuition for public universities like Ohio State? My son is 22 and has never been to college because we thought it would be too expensive for us. I would like him to go, but is he too old for these programs? Uh, Candy, I have not seen any restrictions when it comes to age. However, we are going to I'm going to I'm going to give you the student financial aid office number. It's 614-292-0300 and I also would recommend you go online uh to the to the OSU uh website and uh look for the answer to that question. It's an important one, but I I haven't heard of one. John Hupelo? I have not heard of one either. Usually it's stuff uh, they they categorize it by first year students and they may have some and uh, eligibility requirements with regard to how long you can be in the program. Again, I'm not familiar yeah. uh, specifically, but um, that's a good question to ask. It is a good question. How what what could colleges and universities do to simplify this whole process, John? Well, the colleges and universities, unfortunately, uh, have to. Um, I'm going to say play along with the federal government on this, and this free application for federal student aid um, is a complex uh, uh, form. It's absolutely required to get federal aid and, frankly, most state-based aid as well. Um, So, uh, for instance, in Ohio, you have the Ohio College Opportunity Grant uh, through the Department of Higher Education, a great grant program. In order to be eligible for that, though, you have to file the FAFSA, the federal uh, program. So the schools have their hands somewhat tied uh, by that requirement. Uh, there's a lot of discussion in Washington about trying to find ways to make that FAFSA form uh, much easier and less uh, onerous uh, on families, and that conversation continues. But And you know what happens when there's a conversation in Washington. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, it doesn't come back Not quickly. Much. Uh, but, <laughs> no, yeah. So, so, so there's, some, there, there's a recognition that, that something needs to be done there, uh, but I, I do think the colleges are, are trying to do their part, and they are burdened uh, by the requirements of the federal government in many ways. What about applicants whose parents are either undocumented, who don't know where their parents are? There's lots of particularly uh, foster children who age out of the system. Um, is, is that a particular issue? It's a tremendously difficult issue, and you know the Trump administration recently um, uh, basically uh, made some uh, movement about the DACA or the the Dreamer uh, yeah. students. Um, and my my best advice to that, because it is very personalized, is, is often the high schools um, are, who are dealing with the Dream Dream Act kids. Um, they're experts in the nuance of all of this. So I, I think it's important uh, that students who are in that situation reach out to their high school counselors. And also, um, Anne, in, in many, many cities in Columbus, I, I know as well, um, there are specific grassroots programs uh, for um, kids who are DREAMers um, and are DACA eligible. And again, uh, most times the high school guidance uh, counselor is, is the first stop and uh, the best place to guide a student uh, for additional help. You mentioned one change in the new FAFSA form. Um, anything else, uh, the one that says that you can use the prior year tax returns, anything else that's changing? Well, uh, the prior, prior year is important. Uh, they, they changed the um, 
the form every year. The new one is just out now for a few days. Um, the only other thing that I will say is that there was a big hiccup uh, for this last class because they uh, they were able to actually tie the data retrieval to the IRS um, tax uh, retrieval system. And unfortunately, uh, that whole system uh, came under stress and they had in February or March last year, they, they had to uh, dislodged the one from the other. I saw this morning on the Department of Education website, it says that the data retrieval um, will be available for this next uh, application process. So um, that's a very significant uh, step as well. So instead of having to go onto your paper forms and put it into the uh, FAFSA form, you can actually have that information downloaded from the IRS data retrieval tool. Uh, So hopefully that will be available and make it a little bit easier for folks to fill out those forms. So your book, Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams, you wrote it. It was published in 2016. Are you updating it? Yes. Well, um, we tried to to write this in plain English. So although, um, for instance, you know, some of the loan limits may not be exactly right and, you know, the mm-hmm. um, like the Pell Grant limit and that, the general advice and the discussion points in there are really generic and meant to provide, as Wendy talked about, if uh, if they had looked at the book in advance, they would say, oh, here are my options around this kind of a loan. I need to look for a cosigner release. I need to understand this interest about accrued interest. So we tried, again, to provide common sense, plain English advice for parents with children of any age. When the child's young, start to save. Uh, there's a great uh, 529 college savings program in Ohio. Uh, take a look at that. Uh, and then as children get into middle school and high school, the book is really meant to provide step-by-step guide for parents to understand how they can position their family and their child for success, which I think Provo said it right. Uh, it's a degree without a lot of debt and a job at the end of the rainbow, and, and that's a great dream for a lot of families. John Hupelow, thanks for joining us again. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Anne. Great to talk to you. John Hupelow, expert in education finance, co-author of the 2016 Plan and Finance Your Family's College Dreams. Uh, thanks for listening today. This is All Sides with Ann Fisher on 89.7 NPR News.